Uh, the patient care which um is seems to be worsening here um uh, as provided by the gp and this is um uh, something we will be talking about from 7:30 am onwards and then uh, from about 8:15 we will talk about um a city council which um uh, had to pay compensation to an scn student uh, so um uh, please do join in both of these discussions you can call us at 02086877878 you can also tweet us at voice of islam uk uh, as is the norm we start off the show with the headlines uh, that appear in the newspapers this morning um so the front pages um, today are split between plans to raise taxes while cutting public spending and the dire state of the nhs The metro leads with Chancellor Jeremy Hunt's warning that everyone is set to pay more tax while billions of public spending will be slashed. The paper says Mr Hunt also hinted that the triple lock on state pensions would remain which meet which would mean they rise in line with the inflation rate at around 10% as it stands. The energy bill uh, help will only be given to the poorest people according to the IS front page. It says Mr Hunt's plans to scrap universal energy bill help from April so millions will face higher energy bills on top of the soaring mortgage costs the paper also notes that prime minister rishi sunak is warning the uk faces another financial meltdown if taxes don't rise and public spending isn't cut the daily express focuses on mr hans warning everyone will have to make sacrifices to get the country through very choppy waters ahead the paper notes the chancellor acknowledges his plans were horrible while hinting the nhs funding could be saved from the coming budget cuts Examining the state of the health service the daily mirror leads with a warning from the Unite Union that the NHS could collapse without an urgent injection of more funding it quotes the union as saying Thursday's autumn statement is the last chance to save the service the daily mail carries an exclusive interview with the UK's top ANE doctor who reveals that he's desperate to prevent his elderly parents from going into hospital this winter Dr Adrian Boyle the president of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine compares hospitals to lobster traps for older people and lament that they are easy to get in but hard to get out of the that point is underlined by the guardian as it leads on a report that up to third of hospital beds in parts of england are occupied by people who are well enough to leave but cannot over chronic lack of social care analysis by the paper of nhs england data indicates an average 13600 beds are occupied by people who could be cared for elsewhere meanwhile the uk and france are set to sign an uh, a security deal aiming to stem the number of people crossing the english channel on small boats according to the times the paper says that more than 40000 people have made the dangerous sea journey so far this year with the new deal set to mean british officials will be sta- stationed in french controlled rooms and share intelligence for the first time Rishi Sunak has written in the Daily Telegraph to label Russia a rogue state 
over the invasion of Ukraine and attacked President Vladimir Putin's over Putin over his failure to explain his actions at the G20. The Prime Minister writes ahead of the summit in Bali, Indonesia, that the UK and its allies will not let our economic future be held hostage by Russia, as well as hailing the recapture of Kherson as a historic milestone in Ukraine's fight to take back what's theirs. And finally, the Financial Times leads with the fallout from the collapse of cryptocurrency firm FTX as other platforms exchanging the traditional money for decentralized digital currencies rushed to reassure clients their money was safe. The paper says the firm's bankruptcy has plunged the industry deeper into a crisis of confidence after a crash over the summer leading to trade traders pulling billions from the wobbling market. So those were the headlines bearing in the newspapers this morning. Uh, we shall now take a quick break, and when we come back, we will continue with the um, news items appearing in, this morning in the newspapers. A reminder of the two topics um, that we shall talk about uh, starting from 7.30 a.m. onwards. So the first is about uh, the worsening patient care received uh, from GPs in England, and the second is uh, a story about a city council which had to pay compensation to an SEN student. So please do stay tuned. We shall be back right after this short break. Selections from the writing of the promised Messiah, upon whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam. Hearken ye who have ears to hear. What is it that Allah requires of you? Only that you should become his alone and set up no equal with him neither on this earth nor in heaven. Our God is the one who is alive today as much as he ever was. Likewise, he speaks today as he did in the past. He hears as he used to hear. To think that he only listens but does not speak in this age is a vain belief. Indeed, he both hears and speaks. All his attributes are eternal and everlasting. None of his attributes were ever suspended nor will they ever be. He is the same unique being who has no associate. He has neither son nor wife. And he is the same eternal being who is peerless, and there is none like unto him. There is no one similar to him in his attributes. None of his powers ever wane. He is near, yet far. Distant, yet close. He is the highest of the high, Yet it cannot be said that there is anyone below him farther than he. He is in heaven, but it cannot be said that he is not on earth. He combines in himself all the most perfect attributes and manifests the virtues which are truly worthy of praise. He is the fountainhead of all excellence. He is the all-powerful. Everything good originates from him, and to him all things return. All possessions belong to him. In him all excellences combine. He is free from blemish, without weakness. He is unique in his right to be worshipped by all who dwell on the earth or belong to heaven. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the live edition of Breakfast Show. And uh, uh, we'll present some news items uh, before you. So the first item is regarding government set to breach foreign and spending cap. Uh, this piece of writing is by James Landell, a diplomatic correspondent. Um, 
So the government is set to breach its cap on foreign aid spending because uh, so much of the budget is being used uh, to pay for asylum seekers in the UK. Uh, spending is currently set at uh, 0.5% of national income, around 11 billion. The BBC has learned that Chancellor Jeremy Hunt is expected to admit there will be an overspend of $1 billion or so in each of the next three years, pushing aid uh, spending to an estimated 0.55%. The Treasury said uh, there were significant pressures on aid budgets the department responsible for the country's finances has been forced to accept the increase uh, because the Home Office has spent so much of the foreign aid budget housing and feeding refugees and asylum seekers from Ukraine, Afghanistan and other coming in boats across the channel. The BBC revealed that last month the government was on course to spend $4 billion of aid in the UK this year more than on direct humanitarian help for countries overseas. <coughs> International rules allow governments to count the money they spend on the first year of an asylum seeker's stay in their country as official development assistance, known as ODA. But such have been the numbers coming into the UK this year uh, that and the home office and drain on the aid, aid budget has risen as a result earlier this um, in the summer the foreign office suspended all non-essential spending on humanitarian and development needs overseas um, causing devastating cuts to UK aid project all over the world this was on top of the government's decision two years ago to cut its aid spending target from 0.7% of national income to 0.5%. The reduction was uh, supposed to be temporary and last only until the fiscal uh, situation allowed, wo which the Treasury last year forecast would be in 2024. But government sources suggest uh, Jeremy Hunt will make clear this uh, Thursday when he announced the autumn statement that there will be no return to the 0.7% target for at least three years, nor is there expected to be any curb on home office use of the aid budget. Even though aid spending overseas is falling, any overall increase in the budget may prove controversial in a week when so much other government spending is expected to be cut by a chancellor. Charities said officials uh, in the foreign office had not realized how much aid was being spent uh, by the home office and had not um, had enough time to cut other budgets to meet the 0.5% target. Officials just don't know that what their budget is going to be, one source said. It is very, very difficult to plan. It is also understood uh, that in the Treasury that Andrew My uh, Michael Andrew Mitchell, the new International Development Secretary, has successfully persuaded the Treasury to pro protect some aid spending targeted at preventing uh, treatable diseases. He also said that um, no, Mr. Michael is expected to announce on Monday that 
just how much money the UK will contribute over the next three years to the Global Fund, the international organization that tackles tuberculosis, uh, HIV, AIDS, and malaria charities are hoping he will allocate at least one billion pounds. Three years ago, the government pledged 1.4 billion pounds for that three-year period. The Treasury emphasized that the government was prioritizing essential overseas aid funding and remained committed to spending 0.7% of national income on ODA once the fiscal situation allowed. In a statement, it said um, across government there are significant pressures on, on the ODA budget due to the courses of accepting refugees from Afghanistan and Ukraine as well as wider migration challenges. We remain one of the lo- largest global aid donors, spending more than $11 billion in aid in 2021, and UK aid has recently gone towards those in need in the Horn of Africa and Pakistan. All spending decisions will be considered in the round at by Chancellor at the autumn statement. So that uh, piece of writing was by James Landell, uh, diplomatic correspondence. So Imam Shazib, do you have any uh, news item? Mm, yes, there's been um, a significant update with regards to the sports, uh, particularly to do with the star at United, um, none other than Cristiano Ronaldo. And there's been a very um, interesting interview which has come out um, about his feelings um, whilst being at United. <laughs> he, he says that he feels betrayed by the club um, and he's being forced out of the club. Um, Ronaldo, who's now 37, promised in August he would give his version of, of life at Old Trafford after failing to secure a move away from United to a club playing in the Champions League. The Portugal forward has now spoken out in a wide-ranging interview with Piers Morgan for Talk TV. United have been asked for a response to Ronaldo's claims. When asked if United's hierarchy were trying to force him out, Ronaldo said, Yes, not only the coach, but another two or three guys around the club. I felt betrayed and pushed as to whether senior club executives were trying to oust him. He added, People should listen to the truth. Yes, I felt betrayed and I felt like someone, some people don't want me here. Not only this year, but last year too. Ronaldo has not played because of uh, unspecified illness since he captained United in their 3-1 defeat against Villa on the 6th of November. He was dropped for the Premier League game at Chelsea last month by Den Haag after refusing to come on as a substitute against Tottenham three days earlier. I don't have respect for him because he doesn't show respect for me, Ronaldo said. If you don't have respect for me, I'm never going to have respect for you. The interview will be shown over two nights on Wednesday and Thursday. Ronaldo also spoke to Morgan about the loss of his baby son in April and how touched he was by a tribute paid to him by Liverpool fans at a game against United at Anfield in the days afterwards. The whole interview is 90 minutes long. Morgan has written a version for the Sun newspaper in which it is clear the contempt Ronaldo has for how he has found United since he returned to the club amid huge fanfare in August 2021. I think the fans should know the truth, he said. I want the best for the club. This is why I come to Manchester United. Ronaldo has said he has not seen evolution at the club since former manager Sir Alex Ferguson retired 
2013. Nothing had changed, he said. I love United, I love the fans, they're always on my side, but if they want to do it different, they have to change many, many things. Ronaldo's, Ronaldo's former teammate Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was United manager, but the Portuguese returned to the club before he was succeeded by Ralph Ranick and then Ten Hag. Ranick left his role as head of sports and development at Locomotive Moscow to take up the job. He had previously built his reputation during his time in Germany with Liverpool boss Jürgen Klopp and former Chelsea manager Thomas Tuchel, speaking highly about the compatriot. On Rannick, Ronaldo said, if you're not even a coach, how are you going to be the boss of Manchester United? I never even heard of him. Ronaldo also responded to criticism from former United teammate Wayne Rooney about his behaviour this season. I don't know why he criticises me so badly. Probably because he finished his career and I'm still playing at a high level, said Ronaldo. I'm not going to say that I'm looking better than him, which is true. So a very um, upsetting um, sort of stance from um, Cristiano Ronaldo in terms of how he feels he's been treated by the executives and indeed some other management um, at the club. And it's I think it's been showing for some time it's been building up and now you know, the truth has come to everybody's attention in other news the king celebrates its 74th birthday um, his first as monarch king charles is celebrating his 74th birthday um, there are no public engagements planned and the king is expected to mark the date privately <coughs> it's too early in his reign for any announcement to have been made on whether the king will follow royal tradition or of having a separate official birthday in the summer. Since the 1700s, monarchs with a non-summer birthday have had a second tied in with the Trooping the Colour Parade. The date of Queen Elizabeth II's official birthday was always scheduled for a Saturday in mid-June and saw the announcement of the annual birthday honours. Again, it has not yet been confirmed whether the same routine will be followed by the new king. While there are no official events scheduled for him, his first birthday as monarch on Monday will be marked by the band of the Household Cavalry performing Happy Birthday during the changing of the guard ceremony at Buckingham Palace. Gun salutes will be fired across London in honour of his birthday for the first time, with the King's Troop Royal Horse Artillery firing 41 volleys from midday at London's Green Park, and the band of the Scots Guards also seek to perform Happy Birthday immediately afterwards. The King's Troop is a mounted ceremonial unit in the British Army that fires salutes on royal anniversaries and major events like state visits, as well as providing a gun carriage and a team of black horses for state and military funerals. An hour later, at one o'clock in the afternoon, the Honourable Artillery Company will fire a 62-gun salute at the Tower of London. Although little is known about what he will be doing, King Charles has enjoyed a few memorable birthday celebrations in the past. Ahead of his 50th in 1998, the then Prince of Wales attended the recording of a star-studded televised birthday gala filmed at London's Lucuum Theatre to raise money for the Prince's Trust charity. It featured a special comedy sketch with Rowan Atkinson reprising the role of Lord Blackadder from the beloved comedy series and Stephen Fry playing the then Prince of Wales. 
and on his 70th, the king revealed his love of Grosko, its version of the Greek dish, uh, Mosaka, but with the grass instead of lamb. So, very happy birthday to our, our monarch, and um, long uh, remain his reign. And lastly, but not least, um, an update with regards to the, um, the migrant issue um, which the country is facing. And the Home Secretary has signed a revised deal with France on channel migrants. The Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, is said to travel is to travel to Paris to sign an expanded deal to try to stop people crossing the English Channel in small boats. The amount the UK pays France to cover the cost of increased patrols at their end will go up from £55 million a year to £63 million under the revised agreement. The number of officers patrolling the French, French coast to try to stop people setting off will rise from 200 to 300. And in recent weeks, Ms Breverman has come under growing pressure over the issue. So far this year, more than 40,000 people have made the perilous crossing, the highest number on record. The BBC's Home Affairs correspondent Daniel Sanford said that while the expanded deal would further disrupt the people smugglers operating in France, it was unlikely to end their trade. The British government has always stressed that there is no single solution to the problem of thousands of migrants risking their lives crossing the channel in small boats. But one approach tried in recent years has been to try to stop migrants leaving French shores. There are thousands of people in coastal towns there who have travelled from other countries and are waiting for the opportunity to cross the Channel to claim asylum in the UK. As well as extra officers and patrols, the British money will allow more use of drones and night vision equipment and will also be spent on boosting reception and removal centres in France. French ports will receive investment to increase the use of CCTV and detection dock teams to prevent illegal entry to the UK via lorries. UK observers will be embedded in French control rooms and French observers embedded in UK control rooms to help inform each other's deployments. So that is the situation um, over there um, with our borders with France. But we'll take a short break and after the break we'll start off our first segment which will be about the patient care received from GPs has worsened. Al-Bari Al-Bari is a word that emulates the whole of the creation of the universe. Allah calls himself Al-Bari, the originator, the maker, the evolver, on three occasions in the Holy Qur'an. He is the one who creates from out of nothing. He is not merely the first cause. He is the creator, the maker, the fashioner. And it is He who exercises control over the universe at all times. Al-Bari creates with no model or similarity and evolves that which is in perfect proportion and harmony without any fault. God is the Supreme Being who exists independently of everything else. He is the sole creator of the universe, the maker of the heavens and the earth. No event occurs in the universe without God's knowledge and explicit consent. 
He is the ultimate source of every action and happening, animate or inanimate. God has not only created the galaxies and stars, but also the life forms of this earth. He is the nourisher and sustainer of all creation. He is their Lord, the holy attribute of Allah, Al-Bari captures the creation of the whole of the universe. The quality of creating the universe out of nothingness and then perpetuating it into existence. This wonderful attribute aligns perfectly with the current scientific view about the creation of the universe from the Big Bang and its continuous expansion. Hazrat Khalifatul Masih IV, may Allah be pleased with him, shed light on this concept in his book, Revelation, Rationality, Knowledge and Truth, detailing how the Holy Quran is the only divine scripture to speak about the continuous expansion of the universe. He states, it should be remembered that the concept of the continuous expansion of the universe is exclusive to the Quran. No other divine scriptures even remotely hint at it. The discovery that the universe is constantly expanding is of prime significance to scientists because it helps create a better understanding of how the universe was initially created. It clearly explains the stage-by-stage -stage process of creation in a manner which perfectly falls into step with the theory of the Big Bang. The Quran goes further and describes the entire cycle of the beginning, the end, and the return again to a similar beginning. Highlighting the unique qualities of Allah, it is all the more important to ponder over this attribute while remembering Allah in order to attain His nearness and favor. This divine attribute, Al-Bari, depicts a wonderful view of the creation of the universe that continues to astound the modern man. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. So, in this first segment, we will discuss about patients' care received from GPs as a person. So, the gist of the story is over the past few weeks, the service of GPs has worsened. Uh, making it more difficult for patients to see a doctor. Most of the appointment systems are now online, making it difficult for elderly patients to reach a doctor. Therefore, many patients are at risk. So, the patients in, in England are being put at risk because of the unacceptably poor service they receive from GPs, MPs, says. The House of Commons Health 
committee blamed the failure to tackle doctor shortages which had led to a decline in the GP patient relationship. Health Secretary Theresa Coffey promised same-day appointments for those that need them. Alongside a guarantee, no, word, uh, no one would uh, wait longer than uh, longer than two weeks. Uh, rules were relaxed, so extra funding could be used to recruit uh, new non-GP staff, such as senior nurses, nurses, as well as asking pharmacists to take one to take on more uh, more work to free up appointments. As the government is struggling to achieve its goal of recruiting an extra 6,000 GPs in this um, parliament. Uh, seeing this uh, same GP was essential to supporting the signs of illness early, early and keeping people healthy and out of hospital. Uh, continuity of care has decreed uh, in the past few years largely due to the GPs choosing to work less time full-time in practices, the head of NHS England has said. NHS uh, England Chief Executive Simon Stevens suggested this was down to the NHS placing more GPs in different NHS settings and denied that efforts to increase access to GP appointments had any part to play. Meanwhile, uh, he admitted access to general practice appointments had steadily worsened for patients over the same period, same time periods as well. Uh, Professor Martin Marshall, chair of the Royal College of GPs, said, Long waiting times for GP appointments are as much of a concern for GPs as they are for patients. Um, patients, uh, moreover, he's, he has said that patients should have access to high-quality GP care when they need it but that care must uh, also be safe and the chronic shortage of GPs is making this increasingly difficult to guarantee. The, m- the move to largely remote consultations uh, during the pandemic was necessary, necessary to stop the spread of the virus and keep patients and GP teams safe. It also meant that GPs have, have been able to carry on working when many other NHS uh, services had to be closed down. These pressures are now sustainable. Six in ten GPs say their mental health has uh, deteriorated in the last year and 63% say they expect things to get worse over the next five years. Uh, A recent college survey found that 34% of the GPs expect to leave within five years, a quarter due to the stress and burnt out meaning 15,000 GPs could be lost from frontline patient care. Uh, So-called telemedicine is less uh, diagnostically accurate than in-person consultations and could increase health inequalities and barriers to accessing appropriate care, finds a new study of patients and clinicians. Uh, There are inherent risks and benefits of telemedicine, uh, particularly for patients with complex and serious unpredictable conditions. Telemedicine increased the potential for inequalities in treatment. Certain groups of patients were perceived to be at a a substantial disadvantage. These included those 
with undiagnosed or more complex conditions for whom english was not a first language or who had hearing cognitive or speech difficulties and patients experiencing socio economic disadvantage or mental health difficulties interaction in telephone consultations is continuous or and uh, orderly but in face to face consultations there are periods of silence that facilitate the introduction of additional topics including social speech and rapid building uh the director of research and the health foundations uh, real uh, real center anita has said that uh, nhs in england is facing a crippling shortage of gps and general practices and general practice nurses over the coming decade england's gps service are under huge pressure uh it's sobering that over the next decade things are set to get worse not better with a growing shortage of gps and practice nurses while these uh, while these issues are not unique to england it is critical that government takes action uh, to protect general practice and avoid its getting locked in a vicious cycle of rising workload driving staff to leave in return creating more pressure on remaining staff and fueling even more departures it must also be clear with the public that the way they access general practice will need to change in 10 years time 25% of general practice roles are expected to be vacant the royal challenge of general practitioners is calling for more support for those in the profession whilst some practices are struggling to recruit they are simultaneously struggling to hang on to existing staff members who are expected to cope with uh, insufferable demands on the service more than 1 million women in england do not have access to a regular female gp a time investigation can reveal uh, the patients include uh, tens of thousands of elderly women who, who often prefer to see a female doctor um, practices can book female locums to see them uh, on one of one of one appointments but they are expensive and patients say that they have faced hostile hostility from staff uh, when they have requested this or complained uh, uh, the question arises here is that are only the gps to be blamed for this so you know sometimes um, Uh, some things that patients and gps and secondary care doctors seem to agree on uh, is that there's a problem with access to healthcare uh, however while some in the media blame gps uh, medical leaders have said uh, the real problem is that uh, successive uh, governments have failed to appropriately fund primary care which handles around 90% of patients contacts Uh, for less than 10% of the national health budget this coupled with the huge stress put on the services by the pandemic has left general practice uh, struggling to meet the ever increasing demand with fewer doctors the bma has reported that the number of patients per practice is 22% higher in 2021 than it was in 2015 
but that uh, the GP workforce has not grown with this demand. As a result, uh, there are now just 0.46 fully qualified GPs per 1,000 patients in England, down from 0.52 in 2015. So the chair of the BMA's uh, General Practitioners Committee, uh, Richard, told the BMJ, uh, GPs share and understand the frustration of patients who are struggling to be seen at their practice, but blaming individual GPs is unfair. And making hard for and making hardworking family doctors for years of government failings um, is completely unacceptable. GPs and patients are on the same team and we uh, despair at attempts to drive a wedge between us and the people we care for. A, a survey found that just over half, 51% of GPs experienced abuse in July. So I was looking for an article, um, searching for something uh, over, over Google. So I found an article regarding um, um, GPs, um, or the healthcare, which is worsening. Uh, it says that uh, this article is by Guardian. Uh, uh, it says that over 80% of UK GPs think patients are at risk in their surgery survey founds. Uh, more than 80% of GPs believe that patients are being put at risk when they come into their surgery for an appointment A new survey shows. A poll of 1,395 GPs found only 13% said their practice was safe for patients all the time. So by this statement, it shows that this is in a really alarming situation right now. Um, so meanwhile, 85% expressed uh, concerns about patient safety, with 2% saying uh, patients were rarely safe. 22% saying they were safe some of the time and 61% saying they were safe most of the time. Asked if they thought the risk to patient safety was increasing in their surgery, 70% 70, 70 said it was. Uh, family doctors identified lack of time with patients, workforce shortage uh, shortages, uh, relentless workloads and heavy uh, administrative burdens as the main reasons people receiving care could be exposed to risk. The survey which was self-selecting uh, uh, also found that 91% uh, said more GPs would help improve, improve the state of general practices. 84% have had anxiety, stress or depression over the past year linked to their job. 31% known a colleague who was physically abused by a patient in the last year. 24% known of a member of general practice staff who has taken their own life due to work pressures. The evidence shows that after you have been already made 20, 25 to 35 decisions about patient's health on a particular day, uh, that as a GP, the risk of making a bad decision goes up, said by Dr. Karen, a GP in um, 
Lincolnshire and the deputy chair of the British Medical Association's GP committee uh, that could be pre- prescribing an ineffective medicine for a patient or making a referral to a hospital for the, for them when it's not needed or worse than that not making a referral when it is needed for example we miss a red flag sign of cancer because we are overloaded already with decisions he for the most said um um uh, in a new campaign called uh, rebuild general practice which is calling for urgent action to improve gp services um Uh, patients are waiting longer than before to get an appointment at surgery struggle with a shortage of both GPs and other staff such as uh, receptionist uh, practice nurses pharmacist and mental health support workers asked why they thought patient's safety was at risk 86% of the GPs surveyed in England Scotland and Wales mentioned not having enough time to fulfill patient's need other cited the widespread shortage of gps 77% having too many patients to look after 66% and too and too few staff 63% jeremy hunt the former health secretary uh, who's backing the campaign said um, the workforce crisis is the biggest issue facing the nhs we can forget fixing the backlog unless we urgently come up with a plan to train enough doctors for the future and crucially retain the ones we have got in 2015 hunt uh, pledged to increase the number of gps in england by 5000 by 2020 he acknowledged that he missed that target because more retired early than um, joined Boris Johnson in promised in 2019 general election to boost a GP workforce by 6000 by 2024 to 25 however Sajid, Sajid Javed the health secretary uh, has admitted that um that pledge will not be deliver, uh, delivered either a continuing high rate of early retirement means that the number of full time GPs is still falling Uh, over half either agreed 29% or strongly agreed 24% that working as a gp is incompatible with a healthy family life while just 24% uh, would recommend general practice as a career a uh, exp- uh, spokesperson for the department of health and social care said There has been an increase of more than 1600 GPs over the past 2 years. Um through the GP access plan we have made 5020 million pound available to improve access and expand general practice capacity uh, during the pandemic. This is in addition to 1.5 billion pounds announced in 2020 to create an additional 50 million general practice appointments by 2024 by increasing and diversifying the workforce so that um, piece of writing was by Dennis uh, who's uh, the health policy editor 
so we are seeing that how the things how things are worsening and uh, you know it's a really alarming situation and uh, the leaders our leaders need to think about uh, about uh, our nhs and uh, the workforce so that the burden could be uh, reduced from those who are working uh, in a, in in nhs and uh, try to think about bringing more doctors more gps and persuade more people yeah imam shazib what do you think about this oh, i think it's a very um, very pertinent point very pertinent topic to be speaking about especially as the winter months are coming and we'll see more and more people flocking towards the gps and indeed there'll be that extra burden on the nhs i was speaking with the doctor actually who had migrated from kuwait just a couple of days ago and he was telling me how you know the pay that they're receiving here it's now he mind you he wasn't a gp but he he was he worked within the hospital as a, in the capacity of a doctor and he was saying that at times he was he was being paid 13 pounds an hour um and that's why a lot of these doctors are moving to these different agencies um whereby they are uh, to some degree um you know given work through this locum i think was the term that he used whereby they get paid you know substantially more 150 pounds an hour so they're not directly employed by the nhs but they're sort of a third party to cross and you know it makes sense why wouldn't you um you know because at the end of the day there has to be um the additional financial incentive and uh, which also certainly helps with um uh, you know being part of the, uh, the healthcare system so in essence, there certainly needs to be a revamp of um, how we can streamline the use of our doctors and instead of there being a reduction within the amount of people, that the amount of GPs that are um, becoming GPs, there needs to be an increase, um, especially with you know, the burden that the NHS is continuously facing with doctors and indeed staff members um, are going on strike. I think nurses were supposed to go on strike just a couple of days ago or at least they announced they were wanted to go on a strike so all of these things things are adding up and there's you know someone will have to give way um and from where we are standing it doesn't seem like the, the staff the NHS staff are going to give way and it, have, it would have to be the government which will provide the reassurance and indeed the, the critical part the funding so that this this lack of um uh, availability um, in terms of the GPs is therefore uh, reduced and there is proper plan in place but we, we are fast approaching the 8 o'clock news we'll take a short break and uh, we'll join after the news and continue with this segment Ashhadu anna Muhammad 
You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome back uh, to the live uh, breakfast show from uh, from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. The time is 8:03 a.m. and we are discussing uh, the um uh, the rather lack of uh, patient care um uh, received from GPs um in England. Um I'm now going to play a short clip this is from the Ahmedia Muslim Medical Association UK's annual conference in 2019 let's listen in the promise of islam said sincerely uh, sincerity towards others and love for humanity is a part of faith the definition of the highest moral values is that sincere kindness and sympathy by uh, be professed towards all humanity without any expectation of reward or recompense this is what is known a true humanity the promise of al-islam for the states allah the almighty never forsakes those people who hold within their heart sincere love for humanity these precious words of the promise of al-islam should be your guiding light and remain etched in your heart and mind at all times they should <coughs> they should Uh, underscore the fact that through Allah's grace and mercy alone you have been able to acquire the knowledge and proficiency through which you can help and serve humanity in a way that others cannot and so you must utilize these skills for the sake of alleviating the suffering of mankind <clears throat> thus it should not be that our amadi doctors utilize their expertise only for the sake of earning the riches of the world or for climbing the professional ladder rather it is imperative that each and every one of you sacrifices a significant period of your lives for the service of the jamaat by utilizing your expertise and training for the sake of humanity only then will you fulfill the rights of mankind according to your capabilities and only then will you be counted amongst those people who have acquired the highest morals as outlined uh, outlined by the prophet al-islam <clears throat> at the end taking benefit of this event i wish to address not only the members of the medical association in the uk but all amdi doctors and medical professionals across the world 
always remember that you must utilize the skills and knowledge you have acquired to fulfill the needs of humanity. <clears throat> As I have said, you should sacrifice your time for the Jamaat <clears throat> rather than only focusing upon your worldly careers. May Allah the Almighty enable all of you to discharge your uh, duties to humanity to the very best of your abilities and to fulfill the expectations of the Prophet and of Khulafa uh, of the Jamaat Ahmadiyya. So that was a clip uh, by His Holiness, um, the fifth caliph and the current caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, may Allah strengthen his hand, whereby he was addressing the uh, medical um, members of uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the Medical Association. Um, and that swiftly also takes us to the Islamic point of view, um, what Islam stance is in terms of its loyalty and indeed its um, duty towards humanity. The Prophet Society, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, stated, and I quite sincerity towards others and love for humanity is a part of faith. The definition of the highest moral values is that sincere kindness and sympathy be professed towards all humanity without any expectation of reward or recompense. This is what is known as true humanity. He further states, Allah the Almighty never forsakes those people who hold within their hearts sincere love for humanity. And on one occasion, God commanded the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, the Holy Quran. I quote, Whatever Allah has given to his messenger, spoils from the people of the towns is for Allah and for the messenger and for the near of kin and the orphans and the needy and the wayfarer that may not circulate only among those of you who are rich chapter 59 verse 8 and the second caliph of the Amdi Muslim community states the society's health requires that material goods be widely distributed and wealth be in easy circulation the Holy Prophet, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, propounded measures that broke the barriers of economic caste and enormously reduced the injustices of special privilege. The main principle of Muslim economics is that the wealth of the people be widely shared. Thus the Holy Prophet, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that the best charity is that which is given by wealthy people signalling the importance of fair and equitable distribution. Today the Islamic teachings of equity in order to eliminate the disparity between rich and poor are being championed by the current and the fifth caliph and worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Masood Ahmad, may Allah strengthen his hand. And over the years, he has urged world leaders and governments to relinquish their greed and vested interests and instead focus on the greater good. For example, whilst delivering an address in the Canadian Parliament, his earlier stated, and I quote, whilst developed and richer nations may have chosen to invest in poorer countries, they have prioritized their own vested interest about facilitating the development of those local countries. Rather than exploitation and greed, the developed nations ought to have championed 
the rights of the weaker nations and sought their advancement. They ought to have sincerely helped the people of those poor nations stand up upon their own two feet with dignity and honour. The momentous address, which the Holy Prophet, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, delivered shortly before his demise, after the performance of what has come to be known as the farewell pilgrimage, is an epitome of the entire spirit and teaching of Islam. In the course of his address, he stated, O men, what I say to you, you must hear and remember. All Muslims are as brethren to one another. All of you are equal. All men, whatever nation or tribe they may belong to, and whatever station in life they may hold are equal. Even as the fingers of the two hands are equal, so are human beings equal to one another. No one has any right, any superiority to claim over another. You are as brothers. So this is the teaching which Islam gives us, which instills within us a great level of brotherhood and indeed a responsibility and duty towards our fellow humankind. Um, And by doing so, we will prioritize this over any uh, other pertinent um, issue because without this understanding and this feeling of, of community and indeed of brotherhood and indeed sisterhood, a society and indeed a nation cannot grow. With that, that concludes our first segment and swiftly takes on to our second one, uh, which is about the city council uh, having to pay compensation to an SEN student. So, the gist of the story is the council has paid out £1,750 compensation for failures that left a vulnerable student without a vital educational support for six months. Bristol City Council failed to issue an education, health and care plan within agreed timescales for the people with special education needs. As a result, the teenager missed half a year of speech and language therapy that required for their studies. Watchdogs upheld a complaint against the council and has since apologised. Bristol City Council failed to issue an education, health and care plan, which is referred to as EHCP, within agreed timescales for the people with special educational needs. And as a result, we mentioned prior to this, the teenager missed half a year of speech and language therapy they required for their studies. The council only issued a draft amendment plan in October 21, and the final plan was not issued until January 22. The Bristol City Council spokesperson said it accepted the report's findings. So who are SEN students? SEN students, uh, referred to as special educational needs, is a legal term that refers to children who have learning difficulties or disabilities that make it more difficult for them to learn than most children in their age. A child is considered to have a learning difficulty if she or he has a significantly greater difficulty in learning than the majority of other children of the same age, or if they have a disability that prevents or hinders them from using facilities that are generally provided for other children of the same age in mainstream schools or mainstream post-16 institutions. What can the school governing body do to meet the needs of children with SEN? Well, they can create and maintain the school's SEN policy, ensure that all governors, particularly 
SEN governors are informed about the school's SEN provision, including how funding, equipment and personnel resources are allocated. They can also assure SEN provision is incorporated into the school's development plan. Certain that the school's notional SEN budget is appropriately allocated to support students with special needs. Well, what happens if the support being provided through additional SEN support is not enough? Well, if a child's parents do not believe that the support provided to their child through additional SEN support is allowing the identified outcomes to be met, they should raise their concerns with the school's SENCO before proceeding to the review stage. The school will not have received any additional funds to provide additional SEN support. Um, we'll continue with this shortly, but I'm pleased to say that we have been joined by our first guest caller. A very warm welcome to Katie Ghost. Katie, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Yes. Brilliant. Um, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Katie. Um, Katie is the Chief Executive of Kids Charity. Could you kindly start off by telling us more about your organisation, Kids, and the work that you do? Of course, Kids is a charity for disabled children, young people and their families, and we provide a wide range of services to disabled children and young people from birth through to 25 years of age. We run services across England from specialist early years education to send advice and support for parents, youth clubs, short breaks and residential states for young adults, whatever their disability. Last year we supported 15,000 individuals and we provided 225,000 hours of support. So we strive to provide the, the practical and the emotional support to be that listening air and that source of practical expertise that can make such a difference to families with disabled children. So, Kitty, what would you? What are your thoughts on um, uh, this issue that happened in Bristol, and how common do you think something like this would be uh, across the country? We have found from speaking with parents who use our services that in some schools, children with special educational needs or disabilities aren't listened to, and in particular post-COVID, we're finding that the the reasonable adjustments aren't being or always being made. To give you a practical example. Lots of children spent time out of school due to COVID, but children are now, it's now compulsory to be back in school regardless of their special needs. Now, that's difficult if the specialist support isn't in the mainstream school that's going to enable you to practically access your education. And a lot of the students we talk to are still struggling physically or mentally at that return to full-time schooling. So we really need to see a more flexible approach. Sadly, waiting lists for diagnosis are very high as well. And that means that if a diagnosis is needed in order to trigger the right kind of support in the school, there's a, there's a block there as well. Um, just to share a, a brief story with you, um, there was a young woman called Erin who's 16, number of disabilities, right side paralysis, ADHD and epilepsy. The issue for her began when she was told she didn't meet the criteria to attend a specialist school. She was put in a mainstream school where she didn't cope well at all. Our advisor was able to support the family. Um, they had to actually appeal the, the decision. And that young woman was able to access a specialist alternative setting, which was successful. And that's just one example to get the right help and support for each individual in place. 
Right. So what do you think is behind this? Is this a priority issue, a lack of funding issue? What's happening with councils? Resources is definitely an issue. Mm. If you think about it, if the resources aren't there to have a speedy diagnosis, then that can be a problem for the system. Often talking to schools, they say they don't have enough of the special educational needs coordinators of the specialist staff in place to meet the needs of the students in the school. And actually quite often mainstream schools will say we just can't have young people here with special education needs because we haven't got the resources and the support in place. So resources is definitely an issue. We always say that if you spend pennies earlier you will save pounds later Mm. on you can prevent young people from falling into crisis if you can give them that tailored early support so that they can thrive and flourish like any other child it's not any better for them it's probably going to cost less as well i mean this resources issue that you point out seems to be a a fundamental one here at uh, the bristol city council certainly because they even fail to issue um, the EHCP plan within the agreed timelines. This is the Education, Health and Care plan, right? So so it, they didn't not. have the resources just to even issue the plan. Forget about, you know, um, supporting uh, the school later on. Councils are struggling all over hmm. the country with a lack of resource and they're having to prioritise people in real need, you know, across the ages, all walks of life and sadly what I see time and time again is disabled children's services often lose out. It's not a surprise at all for us to hear that uh, somebody who needs uh, an education, health and care plan, that they've not even been able to get on the first rung sometimes, Mm. that even being considered, let alone um, getting to a point where that can be released. We need much more information and advice earlier on in the system so that people can really get going with that and 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 again that's a, that's a much cheaper way to do it but it, it, this is a pattern sadly and we're very worried that councils are already cash strapped and they're going to be having to make very difficult decisions we think that disabled children and young people are going to lose out so have you done any surveys or would you what, what would uh, in the absence of that any anecdotal evidence suggests that this is um, a common or a not common practice I- I- among councils across the country? Um, it's it's certainly common with because we provide information and advice in different parts of the country. Mm-hmm. And what we also find is that, that every council can be in a different position as, as well in terms of timings and so on. So it's certainly not a surprise. We hear from parents uh, all the time, as I say, that uh, that an EHCP plan hasn't been issued to the you know to the timeline that it that it should have been. The government is consulting on changes to the entire system at the moment. What they've said is the right support should be in the right place and at the right time for children and young people with sent. We completely agree with that, but we are waiting to see the implementation plan and what kind of cash can be put behind any changes to the system and that's essential if if young people and families are going to have any faith that anything is going to change. So what advice, Katie, would you give to parents who have SCN children um, uh, and if they get in touch or if they want to get in touch with you, um, what advice would you give them? Well, please do get in touch. You can find out more on our website, which is www.kids, that's K-I-K dsorguk and you can complete a form, a self-referral form, if you'd like to talk to us about getting some support. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at Kids Charity. 
something that makes a big difference as well to the parents and carers we talk to is finding others who are in the same situation, who are in the same boat. And we find that, that somebody who's been through the system, you know, maybe you've got a three or four year old and you've struggled to get some support and then you have found somebody talking to another parent or care in that situation can be really beneficial as well. Right. And um, what specifically, what sort of support do you provide um, to SEN children? We provide a whole range of services across England. So I was visiting recently some of our specialist early years. So this is for the very youngest children. We run a couple of nurseries with specialists and support. And we also have early years groups and, and stay and play groups, which are joyful actually and they're giving those opportunities whatever the disabilities a child has those opportunities to have fun play learn and grow we also provide after school clubs youth clubs short breaks which are so important because that's an opportunity for a young person to do a fun activity and to make friends and for their families to have some time on their own as well and that's something that we hear is is of real value and we also have a place that we provide residential stays for young adults so we what's special about kids is that we are an open doors charity whether or not somebody had a diagnosis or not we're just there for all disabled children and young people and their families you mentioned katie that uh, the government is in the process of doing a uh, consultation at the moment what more do you think uh, needs to be done to help asian children we want to see support and understanding at the earliest opportunity. We still meet parents, parents-to-be, before their baby is born, who sometimes come across negative attitudes, including from professionals about the fact that their child might be born with a disability. We want that to come to an end. Everybody should have that, that positive appreciation and support that bringing children into the world is a wonderful thing so we'd actually like to see some practical pre-birth support we want to see an improvement to the early years because if you support a family you know the one-year-old or two-year-old or three-year-old you improve their chances of getting the right placement at primary school you improve the chances of getting them into a mainstream school if that's the right place for them or into a special school if that's if that's the right setting for them and we think that if we put more resource and understanding and practical help into those early years we would really be doing a lot to help disabled children and young people flourish we were disappointed there wasn't enough of an emphasis in the government send review on early years uh, we have heard a little bit more on that recently we would really like to see them double down and make a difference to the experience of of children with send in the early years it's shocking when you look at the number of young children who access the free childcare hours support there's a very big gap between children with a disability who get that free uh, hours of childcare and those who don't and that we'd like to see that gap closed Right. And uh, lastly, Ms. Ghost, uh, you work across England, uh, you mentioned. Um, uh, do you, how do you fulfill your own funding needs and how can um, uh, our listeners help? Well, uh, listeners' generosity would be incredible and our website is, is kids.org.uk and you can donate there. Every single penny goes to help a disabled child or young person. We have a mix of funding sources, including local government funding, but we are desperately reliant, given the need that is out there. We have waiting lists in many of our services, so we are hugely reliant on the generosity generosity of listeners such as yourself so please do donate every single pound makes a difference to kids excellent uh, 
Uh, Katie Goes, thank you so very much for joining us. Uh, my apologies. I, I just saw the note that uh, uh, you had asked to use your surname instead of your first name. My apologies. I just saw that uh, instead of um, uh, seeing that at the beginning. So apologies for that. Uh, and thank you very much for joining us this morning. It was, oh, was really uh, a pleasure. And uh, we certainly learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners as well. Have a good morning. Have a good morning as well. Thank you very much. So that was uh, Katie Ghost, who is uh, Chief Executive of the Kids Charity. Right. Um, uh, quite interesting uh, that, uh, you know, the government is uh, is doing another consultation um, around what needs to be done here. Uh, and apparently uh, quite, a, quite a lot more needs to be done because, uh, you know, according to Katie, what's happened in Bristol isn't, uh, isn't a one-off. This is something which uh, which seems to be happening um, across the country, and it's a shame. Um, you know, there's been so much scrutiny over the uh, this particular department mm. um, for various years, and it seems this that you know the government's got too much on its plate, so to speak. Um, and you know, government such as ours um, has to really combat on various fronts. Um, and we can only hope and pray that you know the issue, especially with you know, special educational needs children, um, is addressed and is addressed in, in the correct manner. Correct. Okay. Let's now go straight to uh, Stephen Kingdom, who is a disabled disabled children's um, uh, campaign manager. Uh, sorry, campaign manager at Disabled Children's Partnership, which is a coalition of more than hundred organisations who campaign for better support for disabled children and their families. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the breakfast show. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, Stephen. So, um, your thoughts, firstly, on uh, what happened in Bristol and and uh, how rampant do you think this is across the country? I think I think increasingly we find parents uh, feeling they're in conflict with their local authorities across the country and trying to get the support that they need and finding it difficult to access that support and finding that it's a it's a battle and the the people who they sh- who should be there to help their children get the support they need feel like they're, they're fighting against them. Right. Um, so, um, again, uh, you know, do, do you think it's, it's because of a lack of funding uh, or just a, a, um, a procrastination or lack of prioritisation by the councils? What's going on? I think lack of funding is, is clearly a big issue and um, local councils have had have borne a, a large brunt of the authority, austerity measures over the last um, over the last twelve years, and we're worried that will obviously may continue with the um, the statement due this week from the government. So lack of funding is, is definitely an issue, but I think prioritisation. I think it's really important. You said that word. I think too often disabled children and their families drop to the bottom of the priority list, and actually they have they have rights to support. They have rights to enjoy the same childhood, the same family life that, that all other families can have. So tell us a little bit about uh, the work that you do at the Disabled Children's Partnership. How how do you help? Uh, how does this coalition of 100 organisations help parents? Yeah, so we, as a coalition, we're a campaigning coalition. So we, we try and be a voice for uh, for parents and for children uh, to amplify their voice and to, to get out the message and campaign with the public, with government, for better support across health, social care and education for disabled children and their families. Many of our individual members provide day-to-day support for children and families, but the the coalition is is about public campaigning. Right, and 
Uh, and finally, Stephen, what more can be done to um, to build more awareness around SCN support and help uh, to SCN students? Well, I, it's great to be on here today because actually the media uh, paying attention to this issue and paying attention to these families is, is really important. I think for a lot of the, the general public, they just don't realise the challenges that families face. They think mm. that if you've got a disabled child, the support will just swing in behind you. And, and that really doesn't happen. So, so raising awareness, um, letting the general public really understand what, what life is like for families with disabled children. And, and for that reason, thank you very much for covering it this morning. No, you're very welcome. This is uh, this is a very very important issue. So, you know, we we can understand uh, prioritization. We can understand, uh, uh, you know, lack of funding. But uh, I guess a lot of this uh, this momentum needs to be built by the government. You know, at the end of the day, is it not the government's responsibility to make sure that that uh, the councils have what they need, or or, or you know, more importantly, the children have what they need, as in children have what they need in this country. Absolutely. We, we, um, we've had three big calls for, for change, and uh, that, those include more funding, those include making sure the legal, the legal framework is clear and properly enforced. But the first and foremost is, is that disabled children and their families are made a priority, and, and that includes by central government. And we would like to see a, a cross-government minister with specific responsibility for ensuring the right support for disabled children and their families. So do you think... Do you expect some good to come out of this latest consultation? Um, we're worried that the government... You're very circumspect in your answers. So that, yeah, we're, we're, so we are. We're worried the government is focusing on the wrong things. And right. actually, actually, it should focus on, as we say, ensuring the funding's there, ensuring priorities mm. there, and ensuring accountability. There is clear accountability in the system. So where things go wrong, uh, where services don't provide what they should parents have a route of redress and those things will change. Because, you know, I would imagine uh, the councils would uh, would get the funding from the government. So if the government is not providing the funding, how would the councils be able to provide that? Would that be correct to, to understand? That is true. As I said at the start, local councils have, um, have seen their budgets really, really uh, squeezed over the past 12 years. But the council still has legal duties um, to provide support to children and families. So it needs to make sure as it sets its budget that it is appropriately prioritising and putting the right resource into these services. Um, can schools do more to help um, on their part or, 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 or are they fully reliant on the, um, on the councils? I think we're worried that um, sometimes schools are quite hostile to children with special educational needs, mm. that the way that, that things like behaviour policies, the way that assessment and the curriculum are designed um, doesn't support uh, disabled children. So I think schools can do more. Um, again, they're facing financial constraints and there's very worrying reports about schools' ability to mm. recruit, for example, teaching assistants um, who provide important support to children with special educational needs. So there's, there's difficulties for schools, but yes, I think schools can do more. And I think sometimes that's about attitude to disabled children and not, for example, as I say, um, having behaviour policies that are so constrained they don't recognise the particular needs of disabled children and children with special educational needs. Right. Um, Stephen, any final message you'd like to leave with our listeners? I think my main message is is that Families with disabled children have the right 
uh, to the support that they need to enjoy the same sort of life and same sort of childhood and same sort of family life as all families and and really just keep keep making that message clear to, to government at national and local level. Right. Excellent. Stephen King, thank you very, very much for joining us. Uh, sorry, Stephen Kingdom, I should say. Um, thank you very much for joining us this morning. It was a pleasure to speak to you, and we hope that uh, uh, these children who desperately need help get the help that they need. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that was uh, Stephen Kingdom, who is um, a campaign manager at Disabled Children's Partnership, which is a coalition of more than 100 organizations um, who campaign for better support for disabled children and their families. Uh, Imam Shazeb, it does look like a lot needs to be done in this sector. Mm. It certainly does seem so. Um, and especially with the naturally with the economic instability, yeah, money is tight. Um, just yesterday, or perhaps a couple of days ago, um, the Chancellor has um, issued a statement saying that there will be um, uh, budget cuts and indeed an increase in taxes. Um, mm. Quite opposite to what the previous um, administration had planned, um, whereby they were giving a lot of relief. So they want to accumulate money so that the um, money can be spent in these various sectors. Um, one such sector which we're seeing is left behind is this particular sector, um, looking after disabled children, which should be you know, right up there with our priorities. And we can only hope and pray that they're, you know, the support and relief that they require is given to them. Otherwise, um, you know, he will be there to help these children. Absolutely. Right. Uh, let's now take a quick break. And when we come back, um, we will look at this topic uh, f- through the Islamic lens. And we will see what Islam has to say about um, caring for the needy um, and especially the uh, the most important um, asset in any society, which is children. So a lot more um, a discussion on that right after this short break. War, poverty, famine, disease, oppression by dictators, dispossessed and persecuted in Palestine, Yemen, Kashmir and Myanmar. The series of indignities that the Muslim world faces are seemingly endless. Many Muslims look at these issues and blame others for them. They blame everyone but themselves. And whilst the perpetrators of the aforementioned suffering certainly do bear a significant portion of the blame, They are not the root cause of the problems of the Muslim world. They are the exploiters of the spiritual and moral degradation of the Muslims themselves. A structure well fortified and kept in good condition is not so easy to storm, but one that has become dilapidated and within which rot has taken hold is far easier to overcome. Thus, a significant portion of the blame must lie with the Muslim world itself, which has become misguided and fractured such that it is ripe for abuse. This is a bitter pill that few Muslims are willing to swallow. This condition was foretold by the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, who warned us, There will come a time upon the people when nothing will remain of Islam except its name, and nothing will remain of the Qur'an except its words. Their mosques will be splendidly furnished, but destitute of guidance. Their scholars will be the worst people under heaven. Strife will issue from them and avert to them. So it is established on the authority of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, himself, that the underlying reason for the problems faced by the Ummah is the spiritual and moral malady that has overtaken it. 
This sickness that has taken hold of the Ummah is the root cause of all the worldly difficulties it faces. The economic, geopolitical, and indeed civilizational collapse facing Muslims everywhere. At this juncture, we have to ask ourselves, if God Almighty and His Prophet, peace be upon Him, have given us warning of our state at this time, were we not also given guidance as to the remedy? The answer, of course, is yes. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, gave the glad tidings that when the Muslim world was at its nadir, its lowest point, God would send a reformer and saviour. He said, I give you the glad tidings of the Mahdi, who will be raised in my ummah at a time of digression and distress. He will fill the earth with equity and justice as it was filled with oppression and violence. Thus, it is clear that a reformer and spiritual saviour would be raised for the age in which the Muslim world would be at its greatest need. The question that naturally arises now is who would such a person be? Since the reformer is given different titles in different traditions, sometimes being called Jesus and other times being referred to as the Mahdi, would it be multiple people or only one person fulfilling all of the prophecies? Again, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, has already given us the answer. He said, There is no Mahdi except Isa, Jesus. And whosoever lives from among you shall meet Isa, son of Mary, who is the Imam Mahdi, the arbiter and the judge. This collapses the possibility of the emergence of different individuals and informs us to await a single person who would act in different capacities as both the Imam Mahdi and Jesus or Isa. So it should now be clear that we, the Ummah, are both in dire need of guidance and consolidation and that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, informed us that one person would be raised who would fulfill all of these needs. The next question that arises is when this person would be raised. Again, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, gave us clear guidance, indicating that this individual would appear around the 19th century. When 1,240 years have passed, God will raise the Mahdi. With all of these emergent questions remarkably satisfied for us by the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, it is clear that at this time, as the Muslim world is at its lowest ebb, we are in the age of this promised Messiah who would also be the Imam Mahdi. He would fulfill the prophecies regarding Jesus or Isa and would arise around the late 19th century, in the same way as the first Jesus was sent to the Ummah of Moses as a reformer. The promised Messiah of this age, whose name was Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, peace be upon him, of Qadian, has already come, when he was expected, making his claim in 1889. But most unfortunately for the majority of Muslims, they have yet to accept him. He was the one who was appointed in the spirit and title of Jesus and the Imam Mahdi, and he was the only claimant to this station in that expected time who lived to old age, and he fulfilled the prophecies regarding the Messiah and Mahdi during his life. Brothers and sisters in Islam, we all know that our religion, our lives, our nations, our offspring, our heritage are all under attack in various ways. Remember that none of these things can ever be restored and flourish, as they should, unless we Muslims accept the Imam that God has sent. This religion of ours was never a worldly tree, nor was the shade it afforded us crafted by worldly means. This final apex religion, which is our common heritage, 
was planted and watered by God himself, and likewise its reformation will not be from worldly processes, but through divine grace. So we urge you, open your hearts, reflect upon the situation of the Ummah and the need for the Messiah, and accept the person that God has appointed. Peace be upon you. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings for Allah be upon you all. <clears throat> Welcome back to the live edition of Breakfast Show. So, um, we were discussing about the people with uh, who are in need here with their disabilities, and uh, now we're gonna look upon how um, what are the Islamic teachings about regarding such uh, people. Uh, who have disabilities and uh, how they can be mingled in the society how can they be helped so you know we know that Islam is such uh, a comp uh, comprehensive religion um, that uh, it gives such sublime teachings uh, which are comprehensive um, and uh, give such directives concerning each and every aspect of life uh, same goes with the with our um, concerning subject uh, which is um, such people who are in any, any kind of disability so uh, you know Islam does not uh, neglect uh, to cater for the needs of any sector of society especially if they require special uh, considerations such as parents neighbors travelers orphans and the sick um, to name just a few uh, throughout the ages, people with special needs and disabilities have been treated harshly. In, in some religions, uh, they would not even be allowed to enter places of worship uh, lest they defile them uh, due to their impurity and would be considered unfit members of society before Islam. Um, um, Arabs were influenced by the beliefs of the people of those religions who lived with them on the same land. However, this attitude changes with the advent of the mercy for the whole world. Uh, the Prophet of Islam, Muhammad, uh, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, uh, Allah declared through him, uh, there is no harm for the blind, and, and there is no harm for the lame, and there is no harm for the sick. Allah commands us in this verse uh, to consider them a part of society and not to ex exclude them as was the habit before Islam. In Islam, Muslims are taught that it is okay for the blind, the disabled or the sick to reside in the house of their relatives or to eat in their homes <coughs> without an invitation. This promotes familiarity and removes those artificial barriers and that keep apart people of different social classes without an invitation. This promotes there is no harm for the blind and there is no harm for the lame and there is no harm for the sick and none for yourself that you eat from your own houses or the houses of your fathers or the houses of your mothers or the houses of your brothers or the houses of your sisters, or the houses of your father, uh, sisters, or from that of which the keys are in your possession, or from the house of a friend of yours, there is no harm for you whether you eat together or separately. But when you enter houses, uh, salute your people 
a greeting from your Lord, full of blessings and purity. Does um, does Allah make plain to you the commandments that you may understand? The Holy Quran did not neglect any aspect of human nature, as I have said before, nor did it issue a command which would be difficult for a human being to follow. It came with an ease that enables every human being, whatever his nature and temperament, to act upon its commandments. Although Islam placed great emphasis on jihad, at the same time it states that the sick, weak and lame who are unable to participate in jihad despite their hearts being eager to, if only they had the physical capacity, it is impossible for the believers who do not serve the religion to attain the rank of those believers who work with all their energy in the service of their religion. Allah the Almighty says in the Holy Quran, uh, those of the believers who sit still, accepting these disabled ones and those who strive in the cause of Allah with their wealth and their persons are not equal. Allah has exalted in rank those who strive with their wealth and their persons above those who, still, who sit still. And to each, Allah has promised good. And Allah has exalted those who strive above those who sit still by a great reward. <clears throat> so Islam does not deprive people with special needs of uh, spiritual advancement um, or of the attainment of the highest ranks including martyrdom or for the sake of Allah, a companion of the Holy Prophet, uh, peace and blessings, uh, blessings of Allah be upon him, uh, Hazrat um, Ammar bin uh, Al-Jumul would walk with a limp due to a pain in his foot, which caused him significant discomfort. And uh, due to this disability, by uh, due to this disability, his sons prevented him from participating in the Battle of Badr. He said to the Holy Prophet, uh, May peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Uh, by God, I wish that Allah fulfills what my heart desires and grants me martyrdom so that I may enter uh, paradise despite my impaired foot. So that kind of wish was, uh, was one of the companions of the Holy Prophet. Uh, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him was the Holy Prophet uh, said, Jihad is not obligatory for you due to your disability. However, if this is your wish, then you may join. His desire was ultimately fulfilled as he was martyred, uh, martyred in the battlefield of Uhud. In fact, Islam does not teach us that suffering is only afflicted upon evil people. Rather, it teaches us that the level of our piety and goodness depends on how we deal with our own suffering and the suffering of others. Uh, during the 7th century, uh, under the government led by the Prophet of Islam, astonishing progress was made in Medina to advance the cause of individual and collective rights. Literate and well-educated people were instructed to teach the illiterate and special measures were put in place to provide education uh, to orphans and other vulnerable members of society. A code of business and financial eth uh, ethics were 
established uh, to ensure that trading was fair and honest. For the very first time amongst the Arabs, an orderly and civilized society was established. Even in small matters, the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, paid great attention to ensuring that the feelings of the underprivileged people were protected. For example, he instructed Muslims to always uh, invite the poor and needy to their dinner parties and social gatherings. If less affluent people were exploited, exploited by the rich or powerful, the Prophet of Islam instructed his followers to help the weaker party uh, attain justice. Certainly we believe that access to education is key to breaking the cycle of poverty that has plunged uh, economically weak countries for generations. Uh, the Prophet of Islam uh, spent every moment of his life championing the rights of all people and through the teachings of Islam he established an in incomparable and timeless character, timeless charter of human rights. The principle of mutual respect which is the means of establishing love and unity has been sacrificed in the modern world in the same in the name of uh, the of such which is called freedom and uh, even entertainment since it was founded um, in 1889 the Ahmadiyya Muslim community which was founded uh, in 1889 um, has always promoted education amongst its members certainly we believe that access to education is key to breaking the cycle of poverty um, and similarly uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community believes that Islam is a religion of love and compassion and so we serve humanity without making any distinction based on the religion and ethnically and ethnicity of those who help. That's why we have a um, um, organization uh, within our community by the name of Humanity First uh, which is well established in more than 50, about 50 countries um, helping those people who are in any sort of need who, um, helping those people who are vulnerable uh, part of the society and so it is you know due to the reason that uh, our uh, community uh, is practicing uh, the uh, real teachings of Islam which was and prof uh, which was given to us by our holy prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. So we learn this from you know from the prophet of Islam who urged Muslims to fund the education of uh, vulnerable members of society such as orphans. In an address by the worldwide head of the MD Muslim community at the UNESCO headquarters in Paris, France. His Holiness mentioned that were out of human sympathy we seek to eradicate poverty and destitution. We also consider it to be the key of key to developing sustainable peace in the world. Only if people have food to eat, water to drink, shelter, 
schooling for their children and healthcare will uh, they be able to live in peace and escape the deadly clutches of frustration and resentment that lead people towards extremism so such are the teachings uh, which were given to us um, by islam by the holy quran by sharia and our community try to profess uh, these teachings in the best possible manner uh, as i have quoted one of uh, the quote of our current uh, worldwide leader of md muslim community so what do you say imam well your points are very valid um, and they treated the concept and indeed the principles and theology of our religion and you know it's very much so the on, the um, the responsibility lies on the muslims because they have been instructed to make sure that they look after those people that are less privileged or in this instance um they those people that are going through um you know, uh, rather have disability issues so i think um the again you know the points the points which you mentioned the quotations the, the various references all um intensifies the muslims at least to make sure that they uphold their responsibilities and duties to the faith and indeed to humanity in general and that brings us to the end of today's program it's been an absolute pleasure uh, presenting with you fine gentlemen um huge thanks to our listeners and indeed our guest callers and not to forget our Uh, production team here and our producer Tahmina Jima researchers Shanza Mubarak Mahna Rahman Amber Kamal Sara Ahmed um, and indeed our brother in the tech department thank you so much for joining us and until next week assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh